0: All right, hello, and welcome back to Food Therapy Podcast. We are so excited to welcome Sam Abbott to today's podcast. Sam is a registered dietitian who helps those with PCOS, ditch diets, improve insulin resistance, and balance hormones without feeling guilty or stressed about food. She is passionate about empowering people with PCOS to find peace and balance with nutrition, hormones, body, and life. You can find Sam on Instagram at pcos.nutritionist, where she gives free tips and support around PCOS. Sam is the owner of PCOS Nutrition Company, where nutrition coaching centers around improving hormone balance without a side of diet culture or weight stigma. Welcome, Sam, to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So... We always like to start, especially with our dietitians. You know, what made you go into dietetics and how did you fall into this special niche of PCOS?
2: Yeah, so when I was in college, I was a biology major, actually in a pre-med track. I've always been very interested in the human body and in women's health. And I actually wanted to be an OBGYN. Um, And when I was in school at the time, I did not know that I had ADHD. And for those who are not familiar with ADHD, (laughs) Brittany and I talk about this all the time, um, you're able to really hyper focus on things that really interest you, but it's really, really difficult to focus on things that don't interest you as much. And When I was in school, I did really, really well in my nutrition classes. I really thrived when I was learning about anything related to food and the human body. But in the pre-med track, we had to take all sorts of classes that like I had to take evolutionary biology and like some sort of botany class. And I really struggled in those types of classes. So about halfway through school, I switched my major to nutrition. And um, I actually graduated with my degree in nutrition and worked in school nutrition for a little while, and then went back and got my RD. For those of you who aren't familiar, you've have to do specialized coursework and an internship and sit for an exam to be an RD. Um, so I worked in clinical for a little while. I actually really loved that. Um, I loved working in the hospital. I learned a lot about other medical conditions. I feel like I really, I really felt fulfilled because I always loved the field of medicine. Um, but then I decided to open my private practice and, When I opened my private practice, it was a brick and mortar in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I did not have a niche or specialty. I just kind of saw a little bit of everything. I accepted insurance and um, I noticed that I just kept seeing client after client that had PCOS. And at the time, I was really not familiar with PCOS or nutrition recommendations for PCOS, which is ironic because... PCOS runs in my family and my sister has PCOS. So I feel like that says a lot about where we are with awareness and education around this medical condition. Um, But I just kind of decided because I was seeing so many clients with PCOS that this was going to be my specialty and I was only going to see um, this type of medical condition. And once I kind of rebranded my company really blew up like at one point in charlotte i had a 200 person wait list It was wild. Um, And I also got really invested in learning as much as I could about PCOS. I'm now heavily involved in PCOS advocacy. I've been to Capitol Hill several times asking Congress to support PCOS legislation and research funding. Um, So it's definitely something that I'm really invested in, even though I don't have PCOS myself, just because I feel like it's not okay to have a medical condition that affects so many people where there's such little awareness and education um, about it coming from the medical community.
0: Yeah. I actually, I didn't know that you wanted to be an OBGYN. So I feel like that's such a a perfect fit for you because it kind of falls within that realm of specialty. So yeah. I was just gonna say, like for those listening and they might not know what PCOS is, maybe let's start there. Like, what is PCOS and how is it diagnosed? So PCOS stands for polycystic
2: ovary syndrome. And I'm really glad that you said that because about half of people that have PCOS don't even know they have it. It's very underdiagnosed. Um, it's a Uh, metabolic, endocrine, and reproductive disorder. It affects up to 20% of women and people born with a uterus. And it's generally characterized as uh, having a lack of period, um, symptoms of elevated androgens like acne, hirsutism, which is excessive hair growth, um, maybe even hair loss or hair thinning along the front of the hairline. It's the leading cause of anovulatory infertility, which I think is what PCOS is kind of known for. And a lot of people are diagnosed when they go off of birth control and they try to get pregnant and they have trouble getting pregnant. But it's so much more than that with it being a metabolic condition that affects the entire body. So PCOS can increase the risk of type 2 diabetes, sleep apnea, uh, endometrial cancer, fatty liver disease. There's also... In association with mental health and anxiety and depression. So um, it's a very complex medical condition. And in terms of it being diagnosed, diagnosing PCOS is actually a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning that There are so many medical conditions that can cause a lack of period that those really need to be explored and eliminated first before a PCOS diagnosis is made. Um, So for example, like hypothalamic amenorrhea, which is a medical condition related to Stress on the body by under eating or over exercising um, that can cause a lack of period. Thyroid conditions can cause a lack of period. There are also other conditions that can cause symptoms of elevated androgens, like for example Cushing's syndrome. A lot of symptoms of Cushing's overlap with PCOS. So once other medical conditions have been ruled out, um, the diagnostic criteria that is most commonly used. To make a PCOS diagnosis is called the Rotterdam criteria. So under the Rotterdam criteria, there are three pieces of criteria and somebody only needs to meet two of them. So one of them is irregular or missing periods. The second is polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound. And then the third is elevated androgens, either with labs or by going uh, by signs and symptoms. So testing androgens can sometimes be really unreliable. So if somebody, um, there's a numerical score that your doctor may use to evaluate your body hair, if you score high enough, um, but your labs are normal, that would still meet a that diagnostic criteria for elevated androgens. Um, And then with the polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound, this confuses a lot of people too, because there are so many different types of cysts that someone can get. A lot of people think like, oh, I had a cyst that burst. Is this PCOS? When really the... um, the cysts that we're looking at with PCOS are enlarged follicles from where your body is kind of trying to ovulate and it can't. And these are different from functional cysts like a dermoid cyst or a hemorrhagic cyst. So um, with the diagnostic criteria, you have those three pieces you only need to meet two. There is also a little bit of discussion or I don't want to use the word controversy in the PCOS space that if somebody doesn't have any signs and symptoms of elevated androgens, do they really have PCOS? Mm -hmm. That's kind of an ongoing conversation too. So if you're somebody that you have only had polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound and you have the symptom of irregular missing periods, but you don't have any of those signs of elevated androgens that's where you definitely want to make sure you've had other medical conditions rolled out.
1: So what would you say most people, like what gets them to go seek help? Is it mostly when they have those irregular periods or is there other symptoms that are typically prevalent too? Mm -hmm.
2: I would say irregular periods is always a big red flag. I think it really varies. I think a lot of people are diagnosed... um, when they're trying to get pregnant. And so a lot of times what I see with my clients in that situation is when they were younger, they were having irregular periods. Um, but in adolescence, it's really hard to evaluate irregular periods when you're first starting your period. Um, there has, from my understanding, I'm not an OBGYN, but, um, there has to be a period of like two years after you start your period to really evaluate that. Mm -hmm. So if there are a lot of issues, a lot of times somebody is just put on birth control to manage that. Yeah. And so they really, and birth control does manage a lot of the symptoms of PCOS related to elevated androgens. So people don't really realize that they've had this going on until they go off of the pill. Um, But now I think that with social media and a lot of education if somebody is having a lot of cystic acne or a lot of hirsutism, like facial hair, hair on the chest or the back, more people now are taking the initiative to ask their doctor to be evaluated for PCOS.
0: Really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, when we think about what people are often taught when it comes to managing their PCOS it seems to differ from, you know, especially the work that you do and a lot of other like weight inclusive providers. So my first question is like, let's say someone goes into a doctor's office, they're, you know, diagnosed with PCOS. What is the conventional guidance around managing PCOS and how does it differ from the way that you help guide management?
2: Yeah, so I think in the past, which again, this goes back to the lack of awareness and education around PCOS, PCOS has kind of been viewed as like a weight condition or a condition of weight gain. And there is this thought in the medical community that, okay, the more adiposity that you have on your body the worse this is going to make insulin resistance. And this is going to be even more inflammatory. So that adiposity on the body is going to really be driving PCOS symptoms. And so the more weight you can lose, the better your symptoms are going to be. Um, and PCOS, at the core of PCOS, is insulin resistance and inflammation. So what we're seeing now, and I'm really... I, I may not see this in practice with my clients and their providers, but in the PCOS advocacy space, in the PCOS research space, I am very happy that there are now more conversations of like, this probably isn't the best way to be thinking about PCOS and treating PCOS for a couple of different reasons. We see that insulin resistance and inflammation occur independent of weight with PCOS. So that's one thing. We also see that the advice to lose weight is really not that effective. I mean, all of the things that we know about um, weight science and how most people who diet will regain weight and most people will regain more weight, like (laughs) that definitely applies to everyone with medical conditions, including PCOS. Also to get back to your original question, a lot of the advice given for PCOS is around restricting foods, especially carbohydrates, um, going back to that insulin resistance piece of things. So eat low carb, don't eat sugar, intermittent fast, keto. These are all things that my clients are often told. And this advice really tends to backfire. And so What I do with my clients is I approach nutrition through an intuitive eating lens, really bringing in the concept of gentle nutrition. So teaching people about inflammation and insulin resistance and how to decrease that, but focusing on adding foods, tapping into your body and how you're feeling, um, and also making nutrition and wellness choices out of a place of self-care versus a place of guilt and shame.
0: Yeah, I love that. You know, really making choices based out of self-care versus that shame cycle and self-blame, which so many people have, and I imagine so many people within the PCOS community have as well. Going back to the link between PCOS and insulin resistance, can you talk a little bit more about you know, what you tell your clients and your audience, because I know this is something that you discuss a lot, you know, especially on your Instagram platform and in your private practice, how can someone manage that insulin resistance piece?
2: Yeah. So managing insulin resistance is really at the core of managing PCOS. Um, high insulin levels actually cause the ovaries to produce extra testosterone, which can drive PCOS symptoms. So the more we manage insulin resistance, the better symptoms can be. Um, And I do talk about it a lot on my page, uh, just because a lot of people don't realize they have insulin resistance. Um, What happens with insulin resistance is it exists on a spectrum so with a lot of people um, with PCOS, in the beginning you may have high circulating insulin levels but your body is still able to release enough insulin to the point where your blood sugars are still normal Um, and insulin is a hormone that helps our body use sugar but over time your body becomes more and more resistant to insulin and then that's where we see high blood sugar and what i see a lot with my instagram community is people are like i'm so confused my doctor told me i don't have insulin resistance because my blood sugar is normal or my a1c is normal so that's why i do talk about it so much although i will say in my program now I more focus on people who have higher blood sugar. So that's progressed to pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes. Um, But in terms of how to manage that without falling back into chronic dieting, your body needs carbohydrates throughout the day. So if you're somebody who is skipping meals or fasting and you're noticing yourself getting really hungry, you going so long in between meals is causing you to overeat or maybe it's a contributor to binge eating. The foundational piece of advice I have is to... Try to evenly distribute your carbohydrates throughout the day and eat regular meals and snacks. Um, Also, adding in fiber and fat and protein to meals and snacks can be really helpful as well. And um, I see a lot of people really trying to avoid carbohydrates. And that is an effective way at lowering your blood sugar and lowering your insulin levels if we're just looking at that in a vacuum. But when we look at that in terms of how that affects you, that oftentimes leads to cravings and binge eating. So it's really not what I see in practice a very realistic way to manage insulin resistance long term. So enjoying carbohydrates and adding in protein and fat and fiber can be really helpful.
1: So many times, like, we're almost like giving recommendations that people are like robots like oh exactly and it's like okay great maybe that'll reduce your symptoms for a period of time but then what happens when like life happens what happens when you get additional stress and that's going to affect your blood sugars and you don't sleep because you're thinking about carbs and when you can't resist the carbs any longer and you've been like you said um can you talk a little bit about the inflammation piece like I honestly don't know much about inflammation. Like, I know that in the body, the higher the inflammation, you know, typically leads to chronic disease down the line, all that type of stuff. Um, But in terms of like food, is there real research behind certain foods causing more inflammation? How do you guide your clients Mm -hmm. through that in terms of like an avoidance perspective? Um, And yeah, how do you talk about that?
2: Yeah, that's a really great question because I think that so often in the non-diet space, when we talk about inflammation, we talk about it from more of like, well, everything is inflammatory and this is like a diet culture type thing. And I do agree that diet culture really has a grip on the term inflammation, (laughs) Um, but in the body... We can have something called acute inflammation or we can have something called chronic inflammation. So think about if you were to fall and like break your wrist and it gets swollen, that's like acute inflammation. Um, Chronic inflammation can occur in the body where it's just ongoing, and when we have an inflammatory response and our body becomes inflamed and we're able to overcome that inflammation, that is good for our body. That's like what our body is set up to do. Um, but when our body has a state of chronic inflammation, Lauren, like you were saying, like that can put us at risk for chronic diseases and other health issues. What we see with PCOS is in general, folks with PCOS have higher levels of inflammation or inflammatory markers in the body compared to people who don't. And the biggest thing that the biggest takeaway here would be that insulin resistance is inflammatory. So if you are managing um, insulin resistance, then that in theory should be a huge Part of helping inflammation. There has also been research about omega 3 fatty acids and inflammation and PCOS, and increasing those can be really helpful too. So, um, fish and nuts and seeds are like a great source of omega 3s too. Your question about is there anything that can increase it? I mean, we could go we could go down a rabbit hole of talking about specific foods that could potentially increase inflammation. But I think that's where we need to get into a bigger conversation of like poor sleep is inflammatory, stress is inflammatory, like uh, other things are inflammatory too. So, you know, coming from that non-diet lens of really focusing on like, okay, how can I care for myself or what can I add here? I think is so much more beneficial than being like, never eat sugar.
0: And that's what's so frustrating. And I'm sure you you feel this way specifically, you know, being in the PCOS space, when doctors give these really vague blanket recommendations, like cut carbs, eat less carbs, cut out sugar. And even if those things were helpful, right? It is so unrealistic and unsustainable for like 99.9% of the people And so it's, you know, I imagine how frustrating it is for patients to feel like that's not something that I can actually stick to. And then that's where the self-blame comes in and the shame. It's like, well, my doctor is telling me to do these things, but it's really hard to actually do them. Mm -hmm. So I love the fact that this is like a realistic way of being like, what can we add versus what are we removing and taking out to help manage symptoms?
2: Yeah, definitely, and I was really, really happy to hear this type of conversation um, at an NIH meeting last year about cardiovascular disease and PCOS Mm -hmm. because people with PCOS are at an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, and one of the doctors speaking was bringing up a really important point of like it's not just all about food, it's not just all about exercising, and she gave the example of how mental health and depression increases the risk of cardiovascular disease. And we need to stop looking at nutrition and even exercise in a way of like, this is the end all be all, even to physical health.
0: Yes. And it's so, you know, obviously there's genetics, there's where you live, your access to healthcare and something that people don't think about is like your relationships, like how much... Mm -hmm what's your socialization like? Like, do you have really strong friendships and people that support you? Like there's just so many other factors.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And like what I see a lot with my clients is that trying to manage PCOS and manage their symptoms. If you have personal relationships with other people who don't understand the approach you're taking, that creates a lot of turmoil and personal relationships. So how is that impacting health? If you feel uncomfortable being in social situations or you're avoiding friends and family, like we, we need to think about PCOS management, you know, using a, a bigger lens. Yes.
0: Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit, we often hear of this, you know, strong connection between eating disorders and PCOS. Can you kind of speak a little bit to that as to, you know, why a certain population or percentage of people with PCOS are often diagnosed with eating disorders?
2: Yes. So we do see an increased risk of eating disorders with PCOS, especially binge eating. And there may be We don't know a lot about the connection. So I can only talk about what I see in practice. But I mean, if you have a medical condition where you're always being told to lose weight, you're always being told to cut out food groups, you're scared to eat, I think it makes sense. And with insulin resistance, an effect of that is always feeling hungry, always craving sweets because your body is not efficiently using glucose or sugar for energy. And so if you're hungry all the time and you're always restricting foods, that really is the perfect storm for an eating disorder.
0: So true. So Sam, for anyone listening to this episode with PCOS... What are three takeaways that you, what are your three go-to takeaways you want to provide them with? Well, the first would be
2: that PCOS is not your fault. We have no research that indicates that someone causes PCOS with nutrition or lifestyle habits. We actually see more of a genetic link and maybe an environmental link. Like what are you exposed to in utero? Um, For example, there is a link between BPA and PCOS. So this is a big area of research, but it it wasn't your carbohydrate intake or your weight or anything that caused PCOS. Another thing too, a second takeaway would be, I would encourage you to think about managing PCOS outside of weight which I know can be really difficult with the medical community and kind of the conversations right now going on um, around PCOS management. But what we see in practice is that you can improve symptoms independent of weight. Um, I have had clients who lost weight and their symptoms got worse. And I have had clients who have gained weight and their symptoms got better. Um, I have... For anybody who's interested in hearing a client story about this, I have my Nourish with PCOS podcast, episode six. I interviewed my client, Sarah. She talked all about how she gained weight when she stopped being so restrictive with food, but through gentle nutrition, she lowered her A1C in the process. And I think this sounds counterintuitive. We always think like, well, I have to be losing weight if I'm improving my health. But I would encourage you to approach that with curiosity rather than an expectation. Um, A third takeaway would be that you can manage PCOS without dieting. You can focus on adding foods. You can still incorporate your favorite foods. You don't have to focus on the scale and you can still manage your symptoms. So if you're somebody who wishes that you could practice intuitive eating or you wish that you could move away from dieting. You definitely can,
1: even though you have PCOS. Yeah, and what you do is so necessary. So if any of you need any PCOS support, seeing Sam would be amazing. So where can people find... Actually, I have a question about the environmental aspect. That's really interesting. Is there any yeah. other... with Is BPA like the most researched thing? Is there anything else that's been researched? So we
2: do see a link. If you are exposed to elevated androgens in utero, Um, there's also been newer research that in utero, if you're exposed to high AMH levels, Mm -hmm. like that could play a role too. And what is that? um, AMH is a hormone that's like kind of your anti-malarian hormone. It's like a hormone released from your egg reserves. So... uh, a lot of people with PCOS have a higher AMH level because they have not been ovulating. So they with PCOS and fertility, it's, yeah, you know, if you can get to ovulating, usually the egg reserve piece of things is not a problem. So yeah, um, there's a whole uh, there's a whole area of endocrine disruptors in reproductive health. Um, and like nonstick cookware and like Teflon and things like that affecting hormones too. Um, maybe not research as directly related to PCOS. But I think when you look at the way research funding is allocated and you look at the... the it's been disturbing of how little research women's health related topics get. And I'm optimistic that that's changing, but I do think that there's a um, there's a lot of opportunity there.
1: And if all of that is gibberish to you, even though Sam breaks it down beautifully, just go over <laughs> and she'll break it down even further.
2: <laughs> yeah, so. and the, the endocrine disruptor piece in terms of the work that I do with clients, that is really something that comes a lot later because what I find is that when somebody is really restrictive and focused on weight, and they're trying to move away from that, it's very common for somebody to focus their energy of being almost obsessive about another area. Mm -hmm. And so I really see that either with like pairing foods or endocrine disruptors too, um, because they're kind of everywhere. So For anybody listening, like, I would definitely focus on the letting go of dieting, eating regularly, and everything first, and things like BPA can come a lot later. So where can people find you? So you can find me on Instagram. I'm PCOS.Nutritionist. Also, my website is PCOSNutritionCo.com and I have my Nourish with PCOS podcast. I'm very active on Instagram, so feel free to send me a DM. Um, I also have a free intuitive eating workbook for PCOS too that I'll make sure you all have the link for that.
1: Yes, we will link that in the show notes. Awesome, awesome. thank you so much
0: for joining us, Sam. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Food Therapy. If you enjoyed what you heard and want to support our podcast, please subscribe, hit download, and share it with your community. We value your feedback. If you feel inspired, please leave a review. Let us know what you've learned and what you would like to hear next.